during the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and God's kingdom will stand forever. Welcome to the end. Probably no subject in a series on Bible prophecy gathers more attention than the mark of the beast. Today we're going to find out what exactly is this mysterious mark and most importantly, how do we avoid receiving it? The Bible speaks of it in strong language in Revelation chapter 14, where the Bible says the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. You will not find a stronger warning anywhere in scripture other than this one right here that warns people about receiving the mark of the beast. If we go back to Revelation chapter 13, we find a brief description of it in verse 16, where the Bible says, and he, the beast, causes or forces all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark in their forehead or in their right hand, that no one would be able to buy or sell except those that had the mark of the beast or the number of his name. And so we're going to dig into this subject today. We're going to find out what is this mysterious mark. But in the book of Revelation, something you're going to find is that Revelation is a book of opposites and contrasts. You have Christ versus Antichrist. You have three angels versus three unclean spirits. You have a woman in white versus the great harlot. And you have the seal of God versus the mark of the beast. The question is, which are you going to have written in your forehead? Or in the case of the mark of the beast, you can get it in your hand as well. To understand the mark of the beast, we must first understand the seal of God. And of course, we could have called this presentation the seal of God, but if you're honest with yourself, it wouldn't have grabbed your attention in the same way that it did when we called it the mark of the beast. Let's go to Revelation chapter 7 and let's find out about the seal of God. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1, the Bible says, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind would not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. These are the winds of destruction that come on the world at the end of time. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, don't hurt the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, of course, some people confuse the seal of God with the seal of the Holy Spirit. The seal of the Holy Spirit is what we receive at conversion in our hearts. But this is the seal of the living God, something that is taking place at the end of time, conferred by an angel coming from the east and something we receive in our forehead. If we can understand and find out what is the seal of the living God, then that's going to give us a good start on understanding what the mark of the beast is all about. With both of these subjects, the seal of God and the mark of the beast, what we are going to find is that they are both centered on the issue of worship. 
In fact, the whole struggle from one end of the Bible to the other, and particularly in the book of Revelation at the end of time, is all about worship. Let's go over to Revelation 13, and we will notice it there very quickly. That's Revelation chapter 13. And we go here to verse 3, the Bible speaking about the Antichrist, the beast. We've already discovered who the Antichrist is in a previous presentation. It says, I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered or marveled or worshipped the beast. It goes on. I saw one of his head, uh, sorry, verse 4, they worshipped the dragon, which gave power to the beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him? Notice the issue is worship here. Verse 8, all that live upon the earth shall worship him. Uh, go down to verse 12, and he exercises all the power of the first beast, and forces the earth and those which live therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And verse 15, the Bible said he had power to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and force as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Here you've got the Bible repeating itself in prophecy five times in the space of 12 verses. And I don't know about you, but when somebody comes to me and they repeat themselves Five times in the space of a few sentences, it definitely gives me the impression that they really want me to catch what they're talking about. The central issue here is the issue of worship. The seal of God is all about worship. It delineates or it marks, it, it identifies those who are true worshippers of God. The mark of the beast is the opposite the flip side to the seal of God. And so therefore we know that the mark of the beast is going to identify those who choose not to worship God at the end of time. So let's think about the issue of worship for a moment. If worship is so central to the issue of the mark of the beast, what is worship? What can we learn about worship? How do we worship and has God given us a mark or a sign, something that defines or outlines or identifies those who truly worship him. We're going to look for that uh, in our Bibles. And while we do, I want you to think about this. When, when our government wants us to remember something, you know, what are the, some of the things that the government might do today to cause us to remember something? Well, we could think of, you know, Australia Day. You know, they proclaim a, a public holiday. And let's face it, we're Aussies. We all love a public holiday. And it doesn't matter where you're watching in the world today. Admit it. You like a public holiday. So that's great. So sometimes they'll proclaim a public holiday to, you know, be a time that we remember something. On other occasions, they might build a memorial. They might build a memorial that... Uh, like, for instance, war memorials that remember those who gave their life in great sacrifice. And, of course, you know, we recently here in Australia had Anzac Day where we, where we remembered all those who have served in the past, are serving in the present, and partic particularly those who have lost their lives in conflict. Does God do the same thing? Or, maybe take that a step further, did we actually get this idea from God? Let's ask ourselves the question, why is it? that God has the right to ask us to worship him? The answer is very simple. Number one, 
God created us. And number two, God redeemed us. And so those two aspects right there are going to be central to the issue of worship. And did God do anything? Did God set anything aside to remind us that he is our creator and that he is our redeemer? Well, when we think about God as our creator, we simply look around us because we are surrounded by a memorial built to the creation of God. And isn't it amazing? Just love to get out there and to spend time in God's creation. But let's go back to Genesis. Right at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. You see, we serve a God who created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh and God wasn't stingy. You see, our government gives us a public holiday once a year to remember something special. But God came along and says, I'll give you a public holiday once a week. Now that sounds like pretty good news, don't you think? And of course, that public holiday is given to us to remember that the reason that we worship God is because he is our creator. Now, of course, if we go over to Exodus, we find this is central to the law of God. Let's go to the book of Exodus chapter 20. And here we find the Ten Commandments, the eternal constitution of the government of God as it was presented to us here on this earth, spoken by God himself, written by God himself, and carved in stone personally by the finger of God himself. The only part of the Bible that was. And here the Bible says in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you should work and do all your labor, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you should not do any work, you nor your son, uh, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, or your staff, in other words, nor your cattle, nor the stranger that is within your gates. Why? For, here comes the reason, in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so right here in the center of God's law, we find the Sabbath enshrined as a memorial to a God who is a creator God. You keep any of those nine commandments to any God you want. But when it comes to this one, it identifies exactly which God we serve, the creator God. Well, what about, what about a mark or a sign of our redemption? Let's go over to the book of Ezekiel. Here's what it says. Moreover, also, I gave them my Sabbaths. Well, that just popped up again, didn't it? What are they a sign or a seal for? The word sign and seal are used interchangeably in the Bible. A seal or a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Wow. Here we have Jesus as our Redeemer, God as our Redeemer. And what is it that is the sign or the seal of our redemption? Once again, it is the Sabbath. And if you can go to the book of Hebrews chapter 4, where you find that the Sabbath rest 
is a memorial of the rest that we receive when we find salvation by the grace of Jesus Christ. What a tremendous privilege it is to be able to worship God and to worship him on the Sabbath day. Now, if the Sabbath here is a sign or a seal that points us to the two reasons that there are that we should serve God, that number one, he is our creator, and number two, is he is our redeemer, then maybe we have found here the seal of God. You know, it gets a little bit deeper than this because we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, what is it that God wants to write inside our forehead? And if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verse 2, that you might fear the Lord God and keep his statutes and his commandments. Go down a few verses and it says, And you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets or right here in your forehead between your eyes. Now, God wasn't saying, look, this is something that you need to you know, write down on a piece of paper and stick it up here. He's saying he wants it to be in your mind. So what is it that God wants to be in our mind? He wants his law in our mind. And so if we're going to find the seal of God, the seal of the living God spoken about in Revelation chapter 7 that is in our mind, in our forehead, then we go to the law of God. When we go to the law of God, what do we find in the center of the law of God? We find the Sabbath right there in the center of God's law. It's almost like God is drawing a bullseye on our world. I want you to think about this for a moment. You see, on our world, if we think about our planet, There's a place called the Holy Land, the land of Israel. It's called the Holy Land. Within the Holy Land, you have the Holy City. That's Jerusalem. Within the Holy City, you have the Holy Mountain. On the Holy Mountain, you have the Holy Temple. When the Holy Temple has a courtyard around it, and then a holy place, and then a most holy place, and the centerpiece of the most holy place is the Holy Ark of God. The centerpiece of the Holy Ark of God is the Holy Law of God. And the centerpiece of the holy law of God is the fourth commandment. God is drawing a bullseye and shining a light to illuminate this one special commandment right here. And there's an important reason for it. You know, the Sabbath is a kind of neutral commandment. There's an obvious reason why we don't have other gods if God exists. There's an obvious reason why we don't kill people or lie to people. But really... What difference does one day make above another? The answer is this. When we love God with our whole heart, we do what he says because we ask him. And the Sabbath reveals what is in our heart. It reveals that we have a love connection with God that doesn't question God and say, you know, I'll serve you, God, at my convenience. No, it's like, okay, God, if you said that, you're God. I love you. You died for me, you created me, and I will do anything that you ask. And so we find here the seal of God. Well, what about the opposite of that? What if we were to go to the mark of the beast and ask ourselves the question, well, where would we find the mark of the beast? You know, it's interesting when it comes to the Sabbath commandment and what Jesus has to say about the Sabbath commandment that when we go to the mark of the beast, we're going to find a reference to it there. But before we do, let's go to Matthew chapter 20, because this is the one commandment that Jesus references in relationship to the very end of time and commands his people to keep right down to the very end of time. 
Notice what it says in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 20, where it says, but pray that your flight is talking about, you know, persecution breaking out at the end of time and the time that we have to flee. Pray that your flight is not in the winter. There's kind of obvious reasons for that. It'd be cold. Ah, but it goes on. Neither on the Sabbath day. Jesus highlights this one in relationship to the end of time. And just before speaking about the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 14, guess which one of the commandments God quotes from. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14 and we will back up just two verses. Revelation chapter 14 and let's see what it says right here in verse 7. Here comes the everlasting gospel saying with a loud voice as the angel proclaiming it, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him. There's that issue of worship. Worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. That's a direct quote from the Ten Commandments. That's a direct quote from the Fourth Commandment. Having said that, the angels go on, they reference the fall of Babylon and then they go straight to the mark of the beast. We have these two in conflict with each other. And so we ask ourselves that most important question. What is the mark of the beast? And of course, you know, many people will immediately say, well, you know, the mark of the beast is 666. No, that's the number of the beast, not the mark of the beast. Read your Bibles carefully, 666 is an identifying characteristic of the Antichrist, one that we haven't studied before, often found in the words vicarious filii dei, coronation title of the popes, which adds up to 666. The mark of the beast is separate from that. And I remember when I was about 15 years old and I started to study the Bible for the first time in my life, I wanted to find out what the mark of the beast was. And I read a book. And in that book... And this was in the late 80s. It had been written in the probably the late 70s or early 80s. I don't remember when. This was a long time ago. I was 15 and I read this book. And the book was all about how that the barcode was the mark of the beast. And whatever you do, don't buy anything with a barcode on it because if you do, you're going to receive the mark of the beast. Wow. You know, I kind of wonder where the authors of those books are today and whether they've ever bought anything with a barcode on it. It does make me wonder, but what it does illustrate is this. When we miss the point of the issue being all about worship and we make the issue about technology rather than worship, we make fools of ourselves when the technology changes. And things that we have proclaimed with confidence in the past are suddenly superseded by the next bit of the technology. You see, the 80s went by and everybody got used to the barcode. And the next big theory through the 90s was the computer chip. And, you know, everybody in the world was going to line up for one of those. And then, of course, the 90s went past and suddenly, you know, your electronic thumbprints came out and you could store all of your information right there. Well, it's like, okay, how do I avoid the mark of the beast in my hand now? Do I need to scrape off all of my, all of my thumbprints and, and fingerprints off of my hand? That's going to be a little bit hard. Well, of course, you only have to jump on social media right now to see that, you know, the COVID safe app is the next one online right there to become the mark of the beast. Friends, the mark of the beast 
is not about technology. Will technology be used to restrict people from buying and selling? Of course. But they don't need any new technology to do that. Let's face it, this is 2020. They already need, they only need the technology that they have already got that exists right now. The mark of the beast is all about worship. And we need to think about the issue of worship as we work our way through this particular subject today. Let's go through this very quickly. In the Bible, Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. Let's go over there. Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. That's a pretty serious passage of the Bible. I want you to think about it right now because when we talk about worship and we say, well, how do we worship? And people say, well, I go to church and I worship or I pray and I worship, I read the Bible and I worship, I profess Jesus Christ and I worship and and even go as far as I do miracles in the name of Jesus Christ and I worship, I cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ and I, and I worship. That's what, not what God defines as worship right here because you can do all of those things and still have rebellion in your heart. What is the highest form of worship? The highest form of worship is the total giving of yourself to somebody else. And the giving of yourself to somebody else means that you obey them. What they say, without questioning it, or reorganizing it to your own convenience. No, it's just like, I love you, I worship you, I'll do what you say. The Bible does not say he that says. The Bible says he that does. Matthew 25, 21, the Bible says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not well said. John 14, verse 15, the Bible says, if you love me, keep my commandments. In Acts 5, 32, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is given to those that obey. In John 5 and 3, in 1 John 3 and verse 22, the Bible says that we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. In Revelation 12 and verse 17, the Bible speaks about those who are alive at the end of time who keep the commandments of God. It speaks about it again after the warning about the mark of the beast. It begins by referencing the Sabbath, goes to the mark of the beast, and then ends by speaking about those who keep the commandments of God. Clearly the mark of the beast is going to be the opposite of the seal of God and it's going to be causing us to be breaking one of God's commandments. The most significant thing that we need to observe at this particular point is this. The mark of the beast is the mark of the beast. And the beast is another word for the Antichrist. It would be very unfair of us at this particular point to come along and to ascribe to the Antichrist what we think their mark of authority is. We already studied the subject of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is defined in the Bible in very clear language. We studied it from Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 13 as the Vatican or the Roman Catholic Church system. That doesn't mean that Roman Catholics are are a part of that system or that they are lost because our salvation is found in Jesus Christ and not in a church. But we ask that system, okay, what is your mark of authority? And then we compare it with the information that we have in relationship to the seal of God. Catholic record, 
uh, from London, Ontario, Ontario makes this statement. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of the fact. And any Protestant who keeps Sunday acknowledges this. Now, that's an interesting statement right there. You see, Sunday, which is the common day of worship for most Christians today, and many of you will be surprised at this statement, is not found anywhere in the Bible. You won't find any command to change God's commandments. This happened centuries after the time of Jesus Christ. We read another. Uh, this one comes from Cardinal Gibbons, where he states, of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act. It could not have been otherwise, as none in those days would have dreamed of doing anything in matters spiritual and religious without her. And the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. Well, why would that be the case? Why would this particular institution choose this subject of the day of worship as their mark of authority? Well, very simply, if you have the power to change God's law, then you have power that is equal to God himself. From the Catechism. How do you prove that the church has power to command feasts and holy days? Answer, by the very act of changing the Sabbath into Sunday, which Protestants have allow of, which Protestants allow of, and therefore they contradict themselves by keeping Sunday strictly and breaking most other feasts commanded by the same church. Now, we really have to ask ourselves the question, how was it that the Catholic Church came to this conclusion? that they could hold this as being a mark of their authority. And in many ways, it goes back to the great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. For centuries, the Roman Catholic Church had reigned supreme throughout Europe. But in the 16th century, under Martin Luther, we had a new movement called Protestantism, protesting against tradition as being equal to Scripture. And the Protestants said, no, we protest that. We say you go by the Bible alone. And I agree with that. You see, if we go down the path of tradition, we can kind of make up any religion that we want. So Martin Luther came along and said, we need to go by the Bible alone. And it was kind of like half of Europe just broke away just like that and said, yeah, we'll do that. The Vatican had to do something about it. And so they sent their very best apologist, their greatest arguer of the case, a man by the name of Dr. Eck. And they met at the Leipzig Disputations. And these guys would go at it, you know, all day, long hours of the day. Luther and Karlstadt versus Dr. Eck. And it would go one way and then the other way. And finally, Dr. Eck came out with an unanswerable argument. This is what he said. Finally, the power of the church over the scriptures holds good from this fact that the church resting on the fullness of power granted to it has made changes with certain precepts of the scriptures for notwithstanding the Sabbath commandment, Sunday has taken the place of the Sabbath. Well, you know, Martin Luther was a Sunday keeper. What was he going to say in reply to that? Dr. Eck, of course, was proclaimed as the winner of the argument and so the argument sort of came to an end. Karlstadt, who was right there in a part of the process, became a Sabbath keeper. And Luther made an interesting admission in the Latin confe- in, in the Lutheran Confession of Faith, where he said, the observance of Sunday 
is founded not on any command of God, but on the authority of the church. Well, that disturbs me because God has given to us a special blessing and he has placed that blessing in the Sabbath day and he didn't put it anywhere else. You see, we serve a powerful God. We serve a God who, if he chose, could have created the world in five days and rested on the sixth. He could have created the world in four days and rested on the fifth. He could have created the world in three days and rested on the fourth. He could have created the world in two days and rested on the third. He could have created our world in one day and rested on the second. But the Antichrist chose the only day that was impossible to be a rest day memorial of creation, the first day of the week as the day that they would change in rebellion against the commandments of God. You know, I love God with my whole heart. I don't want to question what he says. I just want to do what he says, don't you? And if he's placed a blessing in the Sabbath that exists nowhere else, I want to have it. I want to receive all of the blessings that I can get from God. Don't you? You know, when we think about the Leipzig Disputation, It was uh, formalized when we come down to the Council of Trent a few years later, when the Vatican called a council together to discuss, can we really defend our position on, you know, tradition being equal with scripture? And this was the conclusion, one of the conclusions. Finally, in the last opening on the 18th of January, 1562, by the way, this council lasted for 18 years, The Archbishop of Reggio made a speech in which he openly declared that tradition stood above Scripture. The authority of the church could therefore not be bound to the authority of the Scriptures because the church has changed Sabbath into Sunday. Not by the command of Christ, but by its own authority. With this to be sure, the last illusion was destroyed and it was declared that tradition does not signify antiquity, but continual inspiration. Now, of course, at this point, many of you might be wondering, oh no, does that mean that I have the mark of the beast or even that all Sunday keepers have the mark of the beast? Well, of course not. If we go to Revelation chapter 13, the Bible is very specific in relationship to the mark of the beast. And in verse 16, the Bible says, he forces all small and great, rich and poor, free and bond to receive the mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Of course, no one is forcing you to do anything at this particular point. And until this is enforced by law, it's not the mark of the beast. But when it is, it's something that we need to be aware of and we need to be preparing for it right now by aligning our lives with what Jesus has asked us to do. Jesus said something very interesting in Matthew chapter 15. He said, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips or their words, but their heart is far from me. Why? In vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. The Bible says that when we replace the commandments of God with the commandments of men, that our worship becomes in vain. You know, sometimes I think about arriving in heaven and and, and I kind of wonder, you know, 
What if, what would I say if Jesus asked me why I kept the Sabbath? You know, I, I would say, well, you, this is something that you created as a memorial of your creative power at creation. Your people kept it all the way down through history. Moses established it or re-established it even before it was recorded in stone on Sinai. And you personally, Jesus, wrote it with your finger in stone. That's pretty special. When you came to earth, you gave me an example of keeping the Sabbath. And then your disciples kept it after you returned to heaven. You commanded me to keep it right down and especially at the end of time. And then you promised me in the Bible that here in heaven, it would be kept for eternity. You know, when I think about that question, there's another question that comes through my mind. And that is simply this. When you arrive in heaven, if Jesus asked you the question, why did you keep Sunday? What answer would you give him? What Bible verses would you quote? And so my question to you today is very simple. What are you going to do about your worship experience with Jesus Christ? Here is a blessing that he offers to give to you freely. It's only found in the Sabbath. Why don't you give it a try? Taste and see that the Lord is good and give your whole heart in full surrender to Jesus Christ in relationship to everything that he asks us to do. May God bless you in a special way as maybe this time you introduce something very new to your Christian experience. You've been listening to The End. For more information about this program or any of this show's free offers, visit www.theend.digital.